This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women and addiction. Welcome back to Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women and sex addiction. My name is Amy. I'm your host here and the founder of Worth Recovery. I'm also a recovering sex addict, and I have been sober since December 2nd of 2012. I'm excited today to bring you episode 60, which is the conclusion of our series and our interview with Stacy Sprout. The book that Stacy wrote is called Naked in Public, and it's a memoir about her journey in sex addiction and other temporary insanities, she calls them. We had such a great time connecting, and I'm really, really just excited to, to excited to know her and to bring this interview to all of you because she has so much to offer us as women in sex addiction, and I'm just so grateful for her courage and her willingness to spend some time with us. We're just going to jump right back into our interview. We had just finished discussing Stacy's idea and curriculum about sexual integrity, just about the idea that so many of us grow up without boundaries, without ideas about our own sexuality and how that works, what we need to be careful of, all those different things. And we were just kind of discussing some of those ideas. Now we're going to jump a little bit more into her book and just kind of conclude our interview and our time together. I'm excited to bring this last episode to you with Stacy. Here we go. One of the things I really learned reading your book, well, let me let me back up. Okay, so... You and I had drastically different therapeutic experiences getting into recovery. Um, and I, mine, I'm learning now, having been in recovery for five years, that mine was like dreamlike. <laughs> that I, you know, very, as soon as I made the decision, I think I have a sex addiction, I was able to contact a sex addiction, a certified sex addiction therapist, and get into a clinic right away who, with someone who was doing really good work under Patrick Carnes about sexual addiction therapy. And so I didn't, I didn't know that that was really, um, I want to say the, uh, oh, what's the right word? Um, that was the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, as I've learned and talked to more women in recovery, um, that several of them go through several therapists before they find, you know, one that actually works for them. Mm-hmm. Now, in your book, you went through several therapists before you found one that worked for you. Mm-hmm. Maybe could you talk a little bit about that, um, how how that worked out for you, and, and how difficult that was a little bit, maybe? Sure. I also hear many stories. In fact, it's fascinating to me that one of the most frequent feedback pieces I get from readers from my book is they're in they're infuriated at Margaret like it's it's the most emotionally responded to part so far if I'm just adding up the comments yeah yeah um and I think that's because so many people have had similar experiences with therapists who have harmed them and that's a betrayal and because it's a power imbalance relationship And so what I would say is, you know, enough time has passed and enough work has gone on for me in terms of my relationship with the character that uh, 
I mean, Margaret is the character modeled after a person that I see some, I see benefits from that relationship as well. Uh, one of them is that I, I learned how I didn't want to be as a therapist. And one of the key lessons that she taught me was do not ever uh, take over someone else's will. You know, like tell them what to do. Uh, you know, a therapist can be many things, and that can include a coach. And every once in a while, I call it fussing. I'm going to fuss about this. If you want to do something illegal, you're going to hear about it from me. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> That's my role, right? And I, because I care about that. But it's not out of a right wrong thing. It's out of like I don't want you to get in trouble, and I want you to be a good citizen in the world. I, I'm do- my dog's in good citizen training, so I'm thinking of those those terminology. But it's like, but, but. Um, but it was very painful to be in a relationship where I felt like my will was was surrendered to someone else, the therapist. And I call it pedestalizing. I put her on a pedestal, I sat at her feet, and what she told me to do, I did it. And then I rebelled on the side, and I didn't tell her. And the thing that's ironic is it's just such a repetition of my childhood home. Well, I, I was as, as you said that, I was going to say... Right? I mean, that's just a repetition of what you grew up with, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, ultimately in recovery, we learn to look at our part. And I had to look at my part, which is I didn't know because of the ways I'd been abused and neglected growing up that I had a right to discern who I wanted my therapist to be, to notice the red flags inside if I started feeling uncomfortable, to bring those up with that person and ask for something different. And if they didn't do it differently, to leave. They, they are employed by me to help me heal. And I had that absolutely reversed. I felt like I was her slave and she was the master and she was going to tell me everything and I just had to go along with it. Meanwhile, I was paying her. I mean, it just, it, it, but, but that's what it's like when you're a kid. You know, I've heard, there's a wonderful trauma therapist named Judith Herman from Harvard. She wrote a book, Trauma and Recovery. Mm-hmm. And she writes, she compares childhood to prisoner of war camps you know, uh, traumatic childhood with fam- families in trouble, you know, right. addiction, abuse, uh, mental illness, prisoner of war camps, you can't leave. Uh, so I know that that repetition happens in therapy. Um, and so that's the f- a thing that I would encourage for any woman who is struggling with that issue of, is my therapist working out, is first of all, just remember that this is a person you are employing. And how is it, you know, talk with other people about do you feel like that is the case in your relationship or do you feel like they're on a pedestal and you're, you're one down? It's hard not to. I mean, the very nature of the relationship is that the client is being vulnerable and they're sharing and the therapist has limited self-sharing. And in the addictions field, that's not quite as much because in addiction, we know that shame fuels addiction and what relieves shame is mutual vulnerability. And so there's a lot more self-disclosure in the addictions uh, work, um, even addictions therapy, than there is sometimes, at least as, how, as I was trained in more classic therapy. But yes, it was very painful to see Margaret. I saw her for seven years, and uh, you know she told me don't date, and I didn't date for, I mean, I think, was it seven or eight years I worked with her? For most of that, I was like, okay, just don't date, you know, and then I would act out on the side. But so to me, one thing I try to do as a therapist that I learned from her is I ask every client, what, why are you here and what are your goals? And then I write down their goals and then I go back to their goals. And so 
that's a really great way to tell if your therapy is working or not is do you have goals if you don't write them share them with your therapist and then in three months say can we talk about my goals and how much progress I'm making on them or not you know and a lot of therapists don't use goals yeah that's actually really funny because that's one of the things that I tell women like do you have clear goals that you're working towards with your therapist because my therapist always did and Mm -hmm. And so, like that, again, I just thought that was a natural part of therapy. And so then I, you know, I, as I talk with women, I'm like, don't you have, like, what are your goals? What are you working towards? And most of them, not most, but those that I would say are struggling with their therapeutic relationship or Mm -hmm. say, no, I have have no idea. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm working towards. I I go and I I pay them and I talk and then I leave and I'm not sure if it's helping. And that's, I mean, that's the paradigm. Like, even when I was in graduate school, not, not all the teaching was about helping your clients have goals. So I learned that more from my own not having had goals from working with Margaret for so long. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, that didn't really work. Now, I mean, I still go to consultation slash therapy in my life as a way of growing and healing. And I don't have ironclad goals that I you know refer to every week, but I definitely know where I'm going. And I know what, if there's things I'm working on, I just have a sense, I kind of track that in my own journal. So as long as the woman is tracking it for herself and finding a way to measure that somehow, and if she's not sure, you know, finding safe people to talk about outside of therapy, because sometimes in therapy, things can get confused. Like therapists can be afraid of abandonment. They cannot want their clients to leave. So one of the things that I think a skilled therapist will say is, our goal of therapy is for you to outgrow me. <laughs> yes. Like that's the goal here is for you to leave so, at some point. Um, but, but not all therapists feel that way. You know, there's an economic incentive. There's an emotional incentive of keeping long-term clients. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, something to be a consumer about, to, to empower oneself. I have a, I have a, article a small article I wrote which is on my website and I think it's like seven keys to effective therapy or or to seven some there's seven things to get the most out of your trauma therapy basically mm-hmm. and so you can look at that at stacysprout.com and I wrote it because I would was getting these questions like how do I know if it's working what's a good you know and so I just wrote some of the things that I'd seen in my clients over the years who were the clients that got well quicker and graduated more quickly and then spent their money on other fun things. And <laughs> <laughs> so that could be a resource if someone wanted to check Other fun things instead of trauma therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Not that we never have fun in there, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard yeah. work and you do it for what you, I mean, the whole point to me of therapy is having a joyful life. It's not having therapy mm-hmm. to forever. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about because, um, again, because it's so reminiscent of my experience, mm-hmm. was uh, when I entered therapy, I had no recollection of any kind of overt sexual abuse in my life. Mm-hmm. I could not pinpoint anything, mm-hmm. as was the case for you. Mm-hmm. And then through work, you started to remember some of these, uh, some of the experiences that you had as a child where you were overtly sexually abused. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you talk a little bit about your book, you know, um, just that it was really shady at first that there was not a lot of concrete detail around what it was Mm-mm. and then the more work that you did the clearer the picture became and until you kind of understood a little bit more about what had happened mm-hmm. that way I would say is exactly my experience mm-hmm. and even I still have a lot of hazy shading around 
exactly what happened and exactly some of those details or or things like that I'm interested to know if in your work if you think that that is common for women um, to not have the memories at first and then also as those memories come up a lot of women that I've talked to say that they don't trust them people don't believe them you know that something they remember after the fact can't have you know couldn't really have influenced you if you didn't remember that that happened mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and so just kind of your thoughts on on those two topics um you know is that common and then how do you deal with that when it starts coming up mm. well uh, you know the research that comes to mind is from patrick carnes is uh lengthy study of over a thousand sex addicts in inpatient treatment centers is what I'm remembering about it and he wrote about it in his book Don't Call It Love and that the percentage of sex addicts who said that they were sexually abused who had made it to inpatient so this is a high high acute uh, sexual addiction lots of unmanageability and then went in for treatment mm -hmm. was in the 80s the percentiles was in the 80s 82 84 something like that mm -hmm. So of people who have advanced sex addiction, there's a very high correlation with sexual abuse. Um, and I believe that was overt sexual abuse. That's not the you know father making sexualized comments right. to a child. Uh, so we know that when someone is into uh, sexual compulsive behaviors, there's a very high likelihood, whether they remember it or not, um, that, that we're looking for that. Not because we're trying to encourage people to make things up that aren't there, it's just low-hanging fruit. <laughs> it's just like, you know, if, if someone comes in and they're bleeding, you're going to say, huh, did you scrape your arm? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, it's right. like, did something happen? You know, yeah, I mean, it's just... Yeah, how did blood get there? <laughs> yeah, it's just logic. Mm -hmm. um, that if you're acting out in the area of your sexuality, or it's sometimes call it hypersexuality, out-of-control sexual behavior, whatever you call it, it's meaningful. Humans are storytelling machines, and if we have certain experiences that happen that overwhelm our nervous system that would not be safe to remember or to process in a narrative way with the neocortex, which is where we start putting things together, then we are going to, oops, the text, sorry, um, then we are going to, th those, those experiences are just stored in our bodies and they just wait for us. Um, so what I'll say is, the, the debate about recovered memory is, is finished in science. So anyone who's still on that debate is either ignorant, they are trying to suppress something that's too painful to remember for themselves, uh, or they're, they're perpetrators and they don't want their crimes to be remembered or acknowledged because they could get in trouble. So if, if anyone's having that question, I say read the book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It's right here on my desk. <laughs> and, and then talk about it because it's we just know that that and in fact it's it's not just a coping mechanism dissociation of memory mm -hmm. is not just a coping mechanism it's a brilliant way that our systems keep us alive so to me I've wrestled with this question a lot because of my own experience and not having been believed but it's it's I don't wrestle with it anymore um, not for myself and not for other people it is important as a therapist when I work with people that I let people define their own reality. Yeah. I just love listening to Stacy talk. I feel like she's a fountain of knowledge and I just want to absorb everything that she's got and, and learn at her feet. Now, learn from my mistakes, ladies. <laughs> I took my laptop to do our recording there and I, for some reason, forgot my power cord or misplaced it. I'm not sure. Well, I 
I just didn't bring it with me. And so all of a sudden my computer stops and the recording stops and and we still had so much more to talk about. And so we had to kind of end right there. However, we were able to have a phone call where we concluded with some more information from Stacy. Now the audio in this is just not as great as uh, our normal interview. However, it's incredibly valuable information. And so I want to make sure I get that to you to kind of conclude our interview with Stacy. So we'll start with one uh, clip from our conversation on the phone about CSATs, about trauma about this whole topic that we were talking about, recovered memory, and then also just about making sure that you get an appropriate therapist in CSAT. So we'll start with that clip here. Here we go. So this this applies to the question about CSATs and sexual abuse and, you know, do we see that or is it how prevalent it is? Or I can't remember exactly the way the question was asked, but it applies to that issue of, treating sexual abuse or trauma in therapy. So what I wanted to say is that in addition to needing to be skilled at assessing for mental, physical, and sexual abuse, uh, the trauma of neglect in people who struggle with compulsive sexual or romantic or relationship behaviors, what I'll say is that CSATs, Certified Sex Addiction Therapists, and, and anyone who is going to specialize, whether they get certified or not, in this field. Um, I, I, we've been talking lately, and I recently was a part of a, a, a teleconference of my peers who are CSATs from all over the country, and we were talking about this issue, and one of my colleagues, Rob Weiss, raised the issue that he's been seeing, and some other people raised it, around people in our practice who are coming in younger, and they don't fit the typical profile of what we had been used to seeing, which is a person coming in with uh, childhood family addiction, mental illness, abuse, uh, uh, clearly post-trauma symptoms that are fueling their sexual acting out and attachment trauma from their families. We are seeing uh, people come into our practices who who are not really qualifying at the same level of trauma, and they do not have the same stories of a family that was broken by addiction or mental illness. And we're hearing stories of of younger people, maybe more younger men than women in in this particular strain, but who, who found pornography at a relatively young age. And as opposed to their development being really harmed by trauma, it's as if their development just got arrested at the time of starting to use pornography. It just... Uh, didn't really continue to grow for them, especially in the area of their their healthy sexuality. It just got frozen. And so they are using pornography for many years as a a way of regulating their mood and kind of dealing with the pain of adolescence and of young adulthood. And then they're coming into therapy more like in their 20s. You know, maybe they're in college or – but they're just recognizing, oh, my gosh, I I have – I don't know how to have social connections very well. You know, I've used porn as a crutch all this time. And when we ask questions like, okay, well, you know, is someone in your family addicted? They'll say no. Or have you ever been physically sexually abused? No. Uh, So the trauma itself, I mean, the pornography itself actually became the damaging factor of their development. And so we're having to really look at our – oh, go ahead. I was going to say, when you say that – like they encounter pornography at maybe a younger age, the early age, and 
and their you mentioned that their sexuality development was kind of stunted or just stops at that point in time. Is yes. it affect their emotional um, growth and social growth as well? I mean, like th- that they are stunted maybe. I don't know if stunted is the right word, but at least their their growth emotionally, socially is also kind of stops at that same age same time period yes. that they yeah okay. that, that's what we're seeing or you know on a continuum that it's affecting their their intimacy skills you know you and I were talking before and you said intimate it's an intimacy disorder right we know sex addiction is an intimacy disorder but what does that really mean well if if you're using something routinely to manage your vulnerability then you don't have the, the ability to be vulnerable it's just don't you just put that away and so one of the key things that brings intimacy and connection for people is when they're able to be vulnerable with one another. And so, yes, emotional, physical, and sexual, or excuse me, emotional, social, and sexual development can be arrested or, or at least stunted. I actually like that word. Um, yeah. When there's a compulsive pornography habit going on. And these folks may have never acted out with another human person in, in the flesh, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. So they they don't you know we see a lot of extreme acting out with as CSATs, but they don't fit necessarily that profile. It doesn't mean that they might not go there down the road because we know if it's if it's a genuine addiction, it's progressive. But you know, so maybe we're seeing people earlier in the addictive process, or maybe this is a different kind of constellation. We're still trying to sort this out, I think, based on what we're learning. But I did want to mention that because. One of the, the criticisms that many people have of certified sex addiction therapists is that we, well, we're sex negative and we think everybody's been, you know, abused and they really haven't. Or, and, and I think we are, I speak for the, my colleagues, trying to be very responsive to what clients come in and are telling us. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there as a, um, a caveat to what we were talking about earlier. I wanted to add that clip from Stacy because I do feel like that is definitely something that a trend that I'm seeing as well in just the work that I do with women that they're coming in earlier um, looking for help in in what they're doing and I love how she says I mean something I say all the time sex addiction is an intimacy disorder and rather than wait till you're 35 which is when I entered recovery when you can't make relationships work and you're starting to see some massive patterns and unmanageability in your life I've seen a lot of women come in much younger and I'm excited for them I'm excited for the recognition and the self-awareness that they have in their lives and that they can get they can get the help and the tools that they need to be able to deal with life on life's terms and really be able to overcome this addictive behavior that they have in their life. So I echo Stacy's words and I'm really glad for that. I don't think that everyone in recovery has some sexual trauma or abuse in their past. And I hope that even if you do, that you're willing to come in and talk about it and work through that in your in your own recovery. Now, I have one more clip I want to share with you. Always when I do my interviews, at the end of my interviews, I like to ask, what's your message? What's your message for the women that are listening to this podcast? We average, we average 100 people listening a day. And so what is the final message that you would like to leave with them? So again, I've got um, a clip from our conversation on the phone, just with Stacey's kind of final thoughts for you today. Let's go. 
Well, I feel right now when I think of women in recovery who are listening to a resource where they're trying to learn and grow and heal on their journey, I just want to express love. I, I've branded my newsletter as Hope is Indicated, and I really mean it. I believe women are so powerful, and anyone in recovery from sex or sex and love addiction has already come to the clarity of some powerlessness, or they wouldn't have chosen this path of healing. And so I just want to reinforce that that power is there and how women tune into what authentically inspires them is an incredibly unique path for each of us. But I so encourage women to, to pursue that authentic experience in, in any and all ways that they can to flame the fire of their recovery and fuel it in a, in a really enriching way. Um, you know, I could think of practical tips, but I feel like they're out there. The practical tips are out there, and maybe they, they need to be out there more, and maybe you and I can talk about how to collaborate, collaborate on that. I think you're doing some amazing work about the practical and just getting people a foundation of, of recovery. Uh, for me, the message is about what is it that gives you hope? What is it that inspires you? What is it that, that is going to make you willing to do this incredibly hard work? Uh, for me, it was this creative urge of writing and getting this book out there. It was my, my you know, a man who I fell in love with, um, not from an addictive place, but from a different place. Um, so my higher power and my support network, um, but it doesn't have to be in relationship that people get inspired to, to do creative things and to grow their own recovery. For me, taking time alone where I wasn't with someone for a long period of time was really necessary to grow my strength. Um, mm-hmm. And so not being afraid to take time and fall in love with yourself and the incredible, unique, fantastic person that you are, that each person is. Um, You know, there's a saying in 12-step recovery, it's like, if you want to love someone, get a plant. And if you can keep it alive after a year, get a dog or a cat. And if you can keep that alive after a year, you might be ready to start dating. um, So, I mean, I have great respect for the amount of nurture that we all need when we're in recovery that we really we can need all the nurture for ourselves for quite some time, and we're worth it. You know, I love your logo. I, I was just thinking about your logo today, Worth Recovery. It's so positive and affirming. And sex addiction and sex and love addiction is so much about shame and hiding and mm-hmm. secrets and self-loathing and self-contempt. And there's plenty of contempt for women to go around. And, I mean, I believe all people struggle with their own uh, various things, and but but I I'm particularly moved by the plight of women, the shaming of women's authentic selves, their voices, their sexuality, their sensuality, and so that message that women you are worth recovery, and that together we are changing this 
this dynamic uh, from addiction to recovery and from being alone into being connected. And it is as a community, unity and as a community, that I believe the tide is turning. And I feel that with you, Amy, just our connection and talking and just trying to be a source of of something positive. It, It brings me, I got chills right now. It just brings me a sense of purpose larger than myself. And so I I just hope and pray that women can continue to come together to break these secrets and support one another and find our voices and let go, shed the shame. Uh, So that's what's on my mind. I hope that's helpful. I just want to close our episode today by echoing Stacy's words. You are worth recovery, ladies. And I love her last sentence, just shed the shame. It's time to shed the shame, and I know that a lot of that comes from us getting together and us being unified as women together in recovery. I'm so grateful for Stacy for the time that she took to spend with me and for her wonderful memoir about her recovery journey. The book is Naked in Public. You can buy it on Amazon or from her website. There is a link directly to the Amazon page from um, our website, worthrecovery.com. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I felt, as I've said before, that reading and participating and hearing someone else's story, I heal just a little bit more. And I felt that in reading her book, and I'm so grateful for that opportunity. As always, ladies, I want you to know that no matter how far down you've gone, no matter how you feel right now in this very moment, you are worth recovery. 100% worth it. I know that and Stacy knows that. So if you don't, just rely on our knowledge until you get there. Don't forget, you can become a Worth Warrior. You can find out about our Worth Recovery events on our website, worthrecovery.com. You can also find a link to Stacy's website, her newsletter, as well as her book on our website, worthrecovery.com. Ladies, I think about you, I pray for you every day, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.